Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss living in D.C. We talked to Ted Bowling about career development, offshore wind, and NEPA. And finally, some beetles can survive being eaten by frogs. What? <laughs> they go in one way and out the other, intact, alive, and haunted by what they've just been through for the rest of their lives. <laughs> That's the grossest thing I could ever, I don't know. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, I guess those yeah. carapaces are very yeah, important. Strong enough are important. Survive. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, the more you talk about it, the worse it gets. I know, right? <laughs> Let's get out of here. Hit that music. Congratulations to Carol Sneed for becoming the next NAEP Fellow. NAEP Fellow members are awarded by the Board of Directors to members who have made significant and substantial contributions to the growth and development of NAEP. Anyone that knows Carol has nothing but great things to say about her, and we couldn't be more thrilled about her receiving this award. Congrats, Carol. Woo! We appreciate all of our sponsors, and they are what keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. Nick, have you been to DC? <laughs> I used to live there. You, know you lived there. What is living there like? Um, everybody that comes to visit you wants to go to the Smithsonian. And you're like, no, here's the metro line you need to get there. Good luck. Um, <laughs> so DC is really unique in a lot of different ways. It's got culture from everywhere. It oozes culture. So there's... You know, Maybe it oozes culture because when I picture DC, I picture a bunch of businessy people running around at 110 speed with suits and ties on. Like that doesn't feel culturally to me. Well, I guess I mean food wise, right? And and okay. to be fair, that is absolutely DC elite. If you talk about Congress, Capitol Hill, all of that, there's absolutely, absolutely that. And it's a you know, go, go, go mentality. It is 125 miles an hour every single day. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. But there's also like there's a lot of different cultural aspects to it. You get food from anywhere, everywhere, and it's really good. And that's really fun, really cool. But the hustle bustle part of it is uh if you're not excited about that, if you don't love being in traffic for two hours, if you don't enjoy just pushing yourself every single day, it's just a really hard place to be. And a lot of people leave because it's it's exhausting. It's an exhausting place to work. Everybody's in a hurry. Every single person there is in a hurry. So, um, interesting. So do you have a favorite part of living there? How long did you live there? Three years. I mean, <laughs> do you like any part of living there? <laughs> of course. Of course. There's a hint, a sense of uh, importance to the area. It is always in the national news, whatever's going on there. It makes news. That's interesting. There's a, I think the commitment to public engagement is very high and mm -hmm. the, the right to protest, the right to be American is very much on display in, in any number of avenues. One of the most interesting is going to public meetings and having 12-year-olds ask you questions about your project because they're they read it, they're interested, they're invested, and they want to know what you're going to do. I mean, that, that's the thing. Yeah, that's, very that's what Ted said. Yeah, you expect that to be the case. And uh, yeah, it's not for everybody, but it's a really cool... I mean, I really do love it. I have a really odd nostalgia. Whenever I leave and I come back... It kind of feels like home in a way. It's especially on the Virginia side of things. I'm a little biased. I did grow up in Virginia. Okay, wait, stop. What's the difference between the Virginia side 
and the other so, sides. So DC is right in the middle between Virginia and Maryland, right? And so the the DC proper is one one region, one part of it, but everything in the surrounding area, Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland, and there's a to say there's a rivalry there is uh, maybe an understatement, but because there's all you know the, the traffic is one of the biggest things that with DC and people love to say that everyone in Virginia says the Maryland drivers are terrible and everyone in Maryland says the Virginia, you know, it's kind of how it goes. And of course the Virginia drivers are correct as uh, Kara shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm Maryland all the way. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. It's a, it's a really, I mean, it can be a really inspiring place. Like you, you see a lot of change and a lot of progress happen and it can be in a really frustrating place too. You see. Yeah. Kara, did you live yeah. there? We lived, um, Gosh, in the early nineties, we lived in Silver Spring, which is on, if DC is on a kind of like a, a diamond, it's on like kind of the one point. Okay. And, um, so we lived about a block, a couple blocks from the Silver Spring Metro station. Okay. And did you like living there? I loved it. Yeah. But I was also much younger, had a higher, you have to have a high energy level, Okay, you know, like that high energy. It might be different if I went back there now, (laughs) but Culturally, there are a lot of diplomats that live there from other countries. Mm-hmm. And, okay. um, a lot of, mm-hmm. it's a very, I don't know if transients, the term I want to use, but people move into the area from everywhere around the world. Right. So yeah, like Nick said, there's, the food is incredible. You can get any type of food from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and there's lots of culture uh, sitting in the metro I used to take the metro to work is, you know, you're just immersed in all yeah. kinds of culture. So it's yeah. a really fascinating place. It's, I love it. Cool. I, I enjoy going like, down there. We used to say like one in every, one out of every 10 metro rides is unforgettable for one reason or another. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. That's about right. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe I'll have to go visit for a third time or something. Mm-hmm. And hopefully not when it's a million person march again. That was cool to be a part of, but not multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, everybody wants to come see the coolest, you know, the touristy stuff. And if you live there, you are as far away from that as possible. It's just how you, it's how you do it anywhere. And really, honestly, like the funny thing for me with DC is like, I did not realize what it was culturally until I left. Mm. It, the, the mentality there is just, but like, I think I've told you guys, like when I moved to North Carolina, like. 5 p.m. on Friday, 4.30, uh, um, everybody in my office left. I'm like, where the hell are you going? We have like yeah. seven hours of work left. Like, what are you doing? And then driving on the roads, like it took me two weeks to realize I'm the only person dodging between cars to get to where I need to go. It's just, <laughs> if you don't do that in D.C., you'll die. You'll literally be killed <laughs> by other drivers. But, uh, you know, in North Carolina, everyone's like, hey, man, you know, place is gonna, still going to be there no matter when you get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just different. You know, that was not freak. a North Carolina accent, whatever that was supposed to be. No, it wasn't supposed to be anything. Oh, <laughs> it kind of sounded like some other like kind of accent. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to. I did not mean to do that. It does slip in every now and then. I know, you, you <laughs> slipped into something there. I don't know what it was. Yeah. No, it's just kind of like, you know, breathe. That was what I was told. Like, you know, after the first like month I was there, like, you need to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Slow talking. down there, city boy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Kara, go ahead. Taking the Metro, it's like, there's a right side and a left side of the escalators. Mm-hmm. And if you want to ride the escalator in one place, you stay on the right. If you want to walk up that 
yeah. walk yeah. up because you're in a freaking hurry. It's always <laughs> yeah. the left no side. Way. And if yeah. you are standing <clears throat> in the left side and people are, yeah. Yeah. They'll tell you to move. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. It's like There's that. like in, an escalator etiquette. <laughs> several cities in Europe are like that too. Yeah. You'll get bumped out of the way if you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you wanted to say to, uh, on your experiences with DC? We didn't, we didn't ask you. I oh, I mean, I've just been to DC the two times. One was the road trip after high school and it was with my boyfriend at the time and his, and his friend, our third wheel. <laughs> and we did just a lot of like sightseeing stuff. And then, um, but they were both two punk rockers with very big Mohawks in DC. And I have some really cool photos from it. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, back, back when that was not common and you know, there's okay. a lot of looks that okay. was, you know, people probably would have assumed we were from New York city, but we were <laughs> Florida. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the second, like I said, the second time was the, the first women's March and it was March and it was very cold, but it was really yeah, it was cool fun. to go to that with so many people and it'd be so peaceful. Like everyone was respectful and, like, yeah, what was, was it like? Yeah, tell me, tell me more about it. You know, I don't really participate in a lot of protests and stuff just because I'm not an activist. You know, I I donate and do things my own way, but I don't spend a lot of time out, you know, holding signs and doing stuff like that. So it was a different experience for me, obviously an important one, but my boyfriend's aunt wanted to go. So we're like, all right, well, we'll just all go. And it just like, we, we parked in Maryland, <laughs> we parked uh, probably around where you were, Kara. We parked there and then took the, the train in. And um, and it was just like, I never, it was so, so many people, like a giant festival almost. But everyone was just so nice and courteous and, you know, friendly. It was just, you don't get that. Even you go to a concert, it's, you bump yeah. into people and, yeah. you know, people are rude and pushing you over and stuff. But there were even parts where, you get to like bottlenecks where corners are really crowded and you have traffic going in both directions. So people are pushing past each other and it was still just so polite, you know? So having that many people who were all there for the uh, same good cause, it was really, really neat. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of the the DC culture as well Is there's always a, a level of activism. It's literally present every day. You can always find somewhere, some way, someone is going to be saying something about somebody or someone, something. It's just what happens. Yeah. So, really- um, yeah, I would like to go back. Yeah. Well, we'll have, we have a lot of people that can give you some tips on where to go. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Including Ted, our next guest. So let's do his interview. Hello and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Ted Bowling on the show for his second visit. He's a partner at Perkins Coie LLP and was the associate director for NEPA at the Council on Environmental Quality. Welcome back, Ted. It's great to be back. So when we had you on last time, we really didn't dive too much into your career path. You started out as a trial lawyer for the Department of Justice and are now in an offshore industry industry after stopping off at CEQ. So how did you navigate your career and when did you know it was time to kind of move on to new opportunities? Yeah, well, I went to law school to do environmental law and I, I pretty much decided in order for me to be involved in environmental issues, the right path for me would be to be a lawyer. And so I I went to Washington University in St. Louis, where the author of the NEPA treatise, uh, Dan Mandelker, was the major professor for the environmental law program. And that's really why I went there. People said, oh, well, you want to do environmental law, you should go there. But, uh, you know, as luck would have it at the same time, so I worked with Dan I also, Richie Lazarus, who's now at Harvard, was teaching there at that time. So I had, I lucked out to become the editor-in-chief of the uh, the journal of what was then the Urban and Contemporary Law. 
journal. Now it's uh, law and policy. And so I had Richie Lazarus as my faculty advisor for the first half of that year, and Dan Mandelker as my faculty advisor for the second half. And it just became this great experience from these two giants of environmental law. That uh, in particular, Richie Lazarus sort of advised me on going to Justice Department. Like okay. you, know, you need to, you need to be an honors attorney at DOJ. It's the only way you can just get right into the practice of environmental law immediately. And so I interviewed twice. I went to Kansas City and then also to Washington, D.C., used the most of that opportunity. And I'd interviewed with law firms and that sort of thing. And I was planning on going to a law firm, but I told them all, but if DOJ comes through, that's what I'm going to do. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's you know, go. Great. Do that. Um, <laughs> if you get it, we'll see you here in two years or so. And, uh, and, and luck turned out, you know, lo and behold, I, I managed to uh, to get it. I went to the policy section that was attached to the assistant attorney general's office and just got immediately into spotted owl litigation and all the you know land management biodiversity issues. I was in the thick of it right from the start. I argued a case in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals when I was just like, I think it was maybe a year and a half out of law school. It was a big spotted owl case and it was a lot of fun, although I was just, I was hooked. And that, so for 30 years after that, I just kind of bounced around the federal government and my career path. I mean, it's kind of interesting to use the word navigate. I would just say it was really more like a pinball in a pinball machine (laughs) that was just, you know, I'd I'd bounce into things and people would say, hey, would you be interested in doing this? Um, I, I didn't look for another job really until about 2018 when I realized, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm coming to the the end of the rope here. But I had worked with George Frampton at the Department of the Interior on detail from DOJ, worked on the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and Tongass National Forest stuff. And then when he went over to the Council on Environmental Quality, he said, hey, would you come over here? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. okay, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> spent 10 years at CEQ. And then, you know, in 2010, after we'd written the Deepwater Horizon oil spill report and such, and I'm like, yeah, I think I want to go to Interior and work on a renewable energy projects because they were doing smart from the start, as well as also so the offshore wind program, as well as also fast tracking wind and, and uh, solar projects in the California desert, worked on the uh, the programmatic EIS for solar in the six southwestern United States. You know, that was great for about five years. I became deputy solicitor for parks and wildlife, and uh, which was an amazing experience. And then, you know, 2016, Horst Gretschmiel said, hey, I'm planning on retiring. Would you please come back to CEQ and take my job? Uh, I said, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I've always operated. I just like, you know, I've been very lucky. I actually got to do what I set out to do and just kind of keep at it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that, you, you know, you wanted to work with the environment and you knew lawyer, being a lawyer was your path. So what drew you to that? How did you know that? And are there any misconceptions about being a lawyer that you want to dispel on the show? Because I'm sure there are some. Well, I, I caution anyone against, you know, just thinking being a lawyer is an easy career path or, you know, that it's just, I'm oftentimes when I hear people saying, well, I'm thinking about going to law school, like, really? Okay. First of all, don't get missed that. Be why and what is it about that? For me, it's actually a civil rights and civil liberties law class that I had in undergrad. 
where I just kind of clicked with it. And I did pretty well on the the law school aptitude test. And so I just kind of knew that that was sort of my my skill set. I do have some lawyers in my background, and my father certainly wasn't one, or my mother. But my mother was a really great, and she was an editor, sort of like basically an English teacher at heart. I grew up correcting my friends on grammar and <laughs> yeah. losing friends because of that. Yeah, right, right. Um, but then, you know, I, I just had this sort of affinity for the tools of the trade. And my, my dad worked for the government, so I had a, a very much a sort of a government orientation. He worked for House Appropriations Committee and then ran the Food and Nutrition Service for a while. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Um, so what was it like uh, when you worked as the associate director for CEQ? You know, I, I imagine being a lawyer in general is just nonstop work all the time. But is it actually yeah. as crazy as that? And how is it different than what you're doing now? Yeah, it was kind of hair raising. I mean, it, you know, to be at CEQ, particularly, you know, in my second tour, you know, I was deputy general counsel and then general counsel of CEQ. And, you know, I was in a council role, but to be actually responsible for it as associate director for NEPA was kind of hair raising. I mean, is towards the end of the Obama administration, of course, our, our focus was primarily on the greenhouse gas guidance that we issued in August of 2016. That was a real labor of love. I mean, actually picking up and finalizing a document that I'd actually started at the end of the Bush administration. And I'll, I'll never forget, wow. I started off with, you know, Jim Connaughton wanted to try to, to draft something. And so that's where picking up from like, you know, the Mona Loa observatory data, like we ought to have in here, where's global CO2 levels right now? And I've been tracking that number ever since. And then I left that effort behind when I left CEQ in 2010. So to pick it up again after we, you know, we we'd done drafts, we'd gotten comments and such, and to bring that to closure was a was a lot of fun. Of course, we also had oversight hearings and controversy associated with it, and it was heartbreaking to see that pulled back um, yeah. and to make another run at it. And then, of course, in the Trump administration, there is a the heavy focus on updating the CEQ regulations. And so working on the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, the rulemaking itself, I never imagined that an endpoint of that would be a rule that got announced in draft from the White House in January of 2020 and then finalized in a big event in July of uh, 2020. That, you know, yeah, it was a it was it was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can only imagine, actually. I mean, we saw that the need for an update to the CEQ regulations coming, and certainly I, I would expect that the Clinton administration, the Hillary Clinton administration, would have taken that on as well. It's just you're opening Pandora's box uh, right. because you've got that great body of case law, and I, I just. I'm still a huge fan of what CEQ did in 1978. The, those yeah. CEQ regulations are are written in ways that you don't write regulations nowadays. I mean, with these great lyric phrases in there about how, you know, alternatives are the heart of the NEPA process. And, and so to mess with that, it was somewhat heartbreaking, but there were opportunities. I mean, frankly, it was a very, you know, they're written at a different time where we were talking about sort of like, paper-based exercises and, right. and to, you know, so to redefine what do we mean by a page as, as 500 words and exclusive of graphics and actually, you know, support actually a readable document in a new 
native format or make it technology neutral so they could actually evolve with public involvement as it progresses. Of course, we issued the proposed rule and then all of a sudden we're in a COVID environment and just, you know, the, the walls came down. I mean, it's just, you know, that all of a sudden we're doing everything by Zoom. And, uh, and that was an interesting, interesting exercise on realizing the digital divide and how it, it became a nationwide digital divide and a special importance on just, you know, having spelled out the affirmative duty to agencies to, to reach the public that would be affected by their action. Not just, you know, sit back and you say, okay, we issued a notice and we didn't get any comments. Right. Right. Which, you know, it's, it's actually a very good point because I think, you know, it's easy for many of us to kind of forget that. Yeah. Okay. Well, not everyone has internet access. Not everyone has good internet access. And a lot of times the people that you are trying to reach don't have big papers. They may be how they even get their news can be completely different. Yeah. So I don't yeah. Know. And, and also, you know, it goes back to that lyric phrase in the 1978 regulations about it's not about better documents, but better decisions. And so engaging the public becomes it's a challenge, especially when you're competing against lots of other inputs and things that might get people much more jazzed than. But what you're talking to them about actually has an effect on the quality of their environment. Right. Yeah. And well, do you have any advice for those that. Uh, you know, because sometimes we have clients that, that don't want us to talk to the public, even though we need to. And sometimes we have clients that want us to talk and that's all they want us to do is go talk to the public. So do you have advice yeah. for kind of threading that needle, getting good input? Yeah, for yeah, I mean, it's all about meaningful engagement. When I was at CEQ and I was meeting with the offshore wind industry and we'd have certain developers come in and say, well, we had X many meetings as though the number of meetings right. was a measure of success. You know, like, right. well, we ought to be able to just go ahead and build it now because we had X many meetings. So like, okay, and yet we're we're hearing from those communities about a lack of engagement. Yeah. Um, and really, you know, that is engaging with their concerns, whether you think them to be valid concerns or not. I mean, you know, explaining the limits of technical and economic feasibility on what they'd want to consider or you know why their pet issue is not an issue here i mean that's still important frankly i've seen a number of projects where people are very worked up about something and half the battle is explaining okay i understand your concern mm -hmm. that's not us mm -hmm. and you know or or here's how we're going to actually make this better yeah that's true with regard to infrastructure projects in particular there isn't an infrastructure project out there that doesn't involve some degree of trade-offs and engaging the public in that sort of decision-making. It's a fun exercise. It's good. It's a good challenge. It really is. You just, you reminded me of a community meeting we had for a transmission line project as an EIS uh, coming oh. from yeah, Canada to New York City, you know? And so you can imagine it's a, six inches long. And I think even just saying, just having a, a model of the line absolutely helped us explain this is not what you guys think it is. It is not this huge mega thing that's going to destroy your backyards and do all this other stuff. But yeah, it's just the, the perception of the project versus the reality of the project. It was our job to get yeah. them to see that. And still, it's a great challenge. I mean, you have to use all the tools of the trade to explain the context and such. I mean, we're actually, my firm, I'm in the midst of litigation on a transmission project. It was designed to bring wind power from the high plains across the Mississippi into Wisconsin. 
And uh, unfortunately, to get across Mississippi into Wisconsin, you have to cross through a wildlife refuge. And so it's, you know, it's a question of alternatives to using an existing right of way, which is not the best location. I mean, the existing rights of way are right through the woods and through a town and that sort of thing. And so, but explaining the trade-offs and explaining also, yes, transmission is necessary. I mean, there's, you know, you can't just wish upon a star or, you know, hope for new technology, better batteries and distributed generation that, you know, there's no replacement for a 345 kV line. Um, But, you know, explaining that to the public, to a judge, now three judges on the Court of Appeals, you know, those are those are good challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're feeling all that here in Syracuse, too, with the replacement of the Upper Decker I-81 highway. There's been years long talks of the alternatives and what they can do. And of course, there's trauma within the community. So there's there's so much to it because it's not just a matter of trade-offs is one thing, but also lifestyles and undoing past harm and other things. Yeah. So anybody who wants to get in this kind of work, it's something it's, you have to be passionate about, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's so necessary too. And actually, you know, highways, I mean, it's the other part of my practice is, is on transportation. And some of these, you know, like the highways decisions, they're really fun because they're, you know, you're going back revisiting decisions that were made years ago. Or, you know, and I was just listening to a podcast. I'm a big fan of podcasts about, you know, the Embarcadero and uh, and San Francisco and how people fought taking down the Embarcadero elevated highway for years until it it basically had to come down because of earthquake. And um, and uh, and now they realize, oh, my gosh, this is this this is actually transformed that part of San Francisco in, in a really good way. Yeah, I'm really excited. They finally decided on a pathway to move forward. And I can't wait to however many years in the future to see it finished. Uh, The current overpass or elevated highway is not in good condition. So I'm looking forward to just moving forward on anything. But I want to circle back before we move forward on your career path and the pinball machine that you live in. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that, you know, you're lucky to have these opportunities in your career, but I'm always talking to people about part of being extremely accountable is also being accountable for the good things that you've been, you've done to contribute to your own success because that way then you can share them with others. So I would like to know, what do you think are those contributing factors that you did that led to opening doors and and getting invited to come serve in different roles? I think that's important for people to know that you weren't just lucky, but you showed up. What were your ethics? What for you as self-leadership, what drove you to get those opportunities? Wow, that's a really good question. And it's going to take a few days of self-reflection. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, have, um, we'll answer this on the next time you're on. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think, I think you might, yeah, I might have to refer you to a few friends to see. What they, um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, for me, it's always been kind of focus on the fundamentals. What's the nature of the problem that we're trying to solve here? Really understanding the history behind, you know, both problems, as well as also really the law and the law, the regulations, the applicable case law. And, um, you know, frankly, I just, I kind of live and breathe this stuff. It's really, it's a passion. I mean, there's a, a certain emotional component to it. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're bored with your job, you really need to look into, well, okay, so what is it that's not motivating me here? Sometimes you have to, you know, take a step back. Stephen Covey says, sharpen the saw. 
you need to do things, say, you know, make yourself more effective. But ultimately, it's really being connected to what motivates you. And what is it that you can contribute? Awesome. I think that's good for people to hear. I like that. Okay, now we can move forward to a question that you were ready for. (laughs) (laughs) So Perkins, can we recently help develop an offshore wind report with the Ocean Conservancy? What does the Ocean Conservancy do and how does it tie into your work? Oh, well, Ocean Conservancy is, you know, it's an organization I was very familiar with from my time at CEQ working on ocean policy and the development of the Obama administration initiative there. And then later on, when I came back, working with the Office of Science and Technology Policy. So I, I knew the folks at Ocean Conservancy as really focused on sustainability, particularly sustainable fisheries, reducing ocean pollution. Uh, you know, they're doing some great work in Florida for conservation of manatees. They're very effective advocates for funding for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So I, I just had a, a great familiarity as, you know, former colleagues there. And so it's one of those great surprises of coming into private practice. And I was like wondering, so who's going to want to, you know, hire me or work with me? And and these, you know, former these colleagues said, hey, we're we're interested in doing a report on offshore wind would be like a set of recommendations on how to actually develop offshore wind that's consistent with the Ocean Conservancy's values of of good ocean planning and ocean stewardship. And it was just immediately attractive to me because it's like, okay, here's an environmental group that's really interested in actually developing offshore wind in a responsible way. So I said, okay, let's run with this. We spent a lot of time working on that report. And it's a very detailed summary of federal law, as well as also just, you know, ideas that have been percolating around for me because I'd worked on the existing BOEM regulations, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Mm. Management regulations back in 2009, as well as also being involved in the Secretary Salazar initiative, Smart from the Start. And so I'd seen this for a long time, and I just, I had these ideas that had been percolating along. It became an opportunity to express that, also really learn about Ocean Conservancy's interest in, in ocean legislation and improving resources for federal and state agencies to work on these problems. So it's it became just a, a fascinating report. I almost couldn't let it go. But however, as we were drafting it, this administration is moving out so fast on so many things. And we just, you know, like every week it was like, oh, they just issued another, <laughs> you know, recommendation that we, you know, we need to retool that recommendation because they're, you know, trying to stay ahead of what was coming was it became a real challenge. But it's been a great report. We, you know, issued it in May, just prior to um, Capitol Hill Oceans Week, which we just concluded. And we've done briefings for senior administration officials and other groups, and it's been well-received. That's awesome. Is that something that's publicly available? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's up on, well, I think there's a link off of my law firm's website, but certainly prominently on uh, the Ocean Conservancy website. And then I pushed it out on LinkedIn and things like that. So and uh, actually, just on Thursday, so we're, we're talking, uh, what, Thursday the, the 9th, we published a little op-ed in The Hill, Amy Trice and I did. Uh, so Amy's was the lead of the effort for the Ocean Conservancy. Oh, great. So it seems like scaling up offshore wind is a challenge, obviously. And do you think that it's ever going to get to a point of being a dominant source of energy in the U.S.? 
Oh, I think it has to. Absolutely. I mean, you look at both the energy needs of the nation, the energy potential offshore, it's just, it's huge. And we've, as you know, we've had some tremendous activity in offshore leasing, $4.3 billion of lease sales in the New York Bight, and then also followed by uh, Carolina Long Bay bringing in uh, for just two lease sales, $315 million. Uh, it's just a lot of lease activity there. So there's a lot of, of interest, a lot of investment there. The long pole in the tent is transmission, and that is you build, don't build wind generation without having it planned into the grid. Yeah. Uh, because the grid is this, you know, as you know from your work in transmission, is that it's this dynamic load management environment there, and they have to plan to incorporate new generation sources. But we're, you know, we're in the midst of a national transition from fossil fuel-based energy to increasing load of renewables, and the offshore wind is that I would expect for certain parts of the country. I'm talking New England and the mid-Atlantic and, and, and possibly also on the California coast and the Pacific, it could be a, a dominant source of energy. And on California, BOEM has just issued a proposed sale notice for leases in Morro Bay and up in Humboldt. So there, there are limited opportunities there, but great potential. A different technology would be floating wind technology out there as opposed to the monopiles that you see yeah. uh, here. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's an exciting area. We're we're working with clients. It's just been it's been a lot of fun to really be on the you know the developer side of it all as well. And so I I sort of have a foot in both camps because I'm working with you know like Ocean Conservancy advocacy groups, but now I'm also working with developers trying to do it right and and uh, really you know in many ways just at the start of the process. Yeah, yeah it's very cool. But I did want to give you an opportunity too to kind of talk through. You mentioned lease sales. So how do they work? What is the point of them? And then why are they so important to the industry? Well, okay. So just basic understanding is that the Outer Continental Shelf is owned by the federal government. So that, you know, all that, all that submerged land more than three miles off the Atlantic coast or Pacific coast from three out to 200 miles is basically under federal jurisdiction. So you don't you don't put something out there without approval of the federal government. And what these lease sales do is unlike an oil and gas lease, which you know more or less carries with it the right to go drill, there's some procedural hurdles to go through, but you're basically buying the right. Sort of reinvented a lease system for offshore wind where what you get is the right to go investigate the site and then come back with a construction and operation plan. But you really don't Buying a lease, you just buy an exclusive opportunity to propose development in that area. But the real, the heavy lift in terms of environmental analysis is on a construction operation plan. There was some thought that, well, maybe we should front load it, it is done with oil and gas. But the industry was so, you know, it was developing. I mean, and, and frankly, the technology continues to develop. We're talking to developers who are planning on using turbines that don't exist right now because things are are progressing to the point where they're getting bigger, they're getting more powerful. That determines how many turbines you're going to have out there. If you want to you know, generate 500 megawatts off of a given lease sale, well, is that five, rather, you know, is it 105 megawatt turbines? You're going to subdivide that by uh, the increasing capacity. 
recognizing that it is a dynamic environment, we the, the leasing system was set up where it allowed for a certain amount of geophysical, geotechnical work, go out and figure out what the benthic resources are, as well as also engage with stakeholders, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the fishing community, with the folks who, you know, have cables running through that area. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the ocean is a you think of it as being so vast, but there are a lot of users. Certainly the Navy, the Coast Guard, I mean, they'll, they'll say, yeah, you think you could just kind of draw a polygon somewhere out there and, it, and, and <laughs> yeah. put, the, put the wind power out there. Well, actually, there are a lot of claimants right. um, on that. And most of them, you know, they don't operate by right. It's just by tradition and by sort of the laws and physics of navigation. And so finding the right place and figuring out how to deconflict for this new use of the ocean space, it's a complicated matter. So you're telling me there's there are unwritten rules of ocean navigation, pretty much? Oh, there are a lot of written rules in ocean <laughs> navigation. I, yeah, I, I, last, I mean, since last we talked, I've, I was given a little sailboat. It's a little 30-footer, 1980 Pearson, a free boat. I'm doing air quotes for that because... <laughs> It will cease to be free once I put like the fair market value equivalent of money into it. And I'm right. well on my way there. But I've, I've also sort of reacquainted myself with the rules of navigation. And it's a complicated environment. It's not for the faint of heart. But I really <laughs> do love that. Yeah. Well, it must be what draws you to it, though. I think that's uh, your AMO almost going after this. Yeah. Well, I, we, we talked about how I, I grew up sailing on the Chesapeake Bay. And that was sort of a goal of mine. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back out there soon. Yeah, it's really great. Maybe even tomorrow. (laughs) Well, I have so many like dumb, dumb questions about the logistics of actually building offshore wind, but I'll save that for another time. Um, (laughs) There are other, and maybe this is just related to, are there other challenges in the offshore wind industry to get to where it needs to be? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, we could go through a huge list. I mean, I'll say sort of top of the list for me is, is back on Marine conservation. So on the Atlantic coast, you have a number of threatened or endangered species there, but the bellwether of them all is the uh, North Atlantic right whale, uh, yeah. which there are about 350 surviving. And they really went through the eye of the extinction needle, if you will. The entire population is, as I understand, descended from eight females. Uh, mm-hmm. You can imagine, I mean, it's called the right whale because it was the right whale to kill. A whale who doesn't swim very fast tends to, you know, hang out near the the surface. And it was um, easy prey for the the whaling operations coming out of New Bedford, Nantucket, what have you. But now it's under great pressure from particularly these giant container ships that come into New York and and, uh, all up and down the East Coast, as well as also fishing gear interactions and that sort of thing. So there's a real conservation challenge there. And the real concern with regard to uh, offshore wind is not the operations of offshore wind, but actually just the construction, the amount of noise. I mean, because like all whales, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they communicate, they can be harassed by construction noise. And you're talking about driving pylons into uh, the seafloor there. So working through the regulatory issues and, and the timing issues, as well as also just how do you really help the conservation effort? for the North Atlantic right whale. There are opportunities for just passive acoustic monitoring their location. It could really help their conservation. Yeah, I actually uh, 
doing a helicopter ride in Hawaii and was really surprised at like, we flew over and the helicopter pilot was like, oh, there's a whale. And then like, it was gone. Like I didn't never occurred to me that like even the sound of a helicopter would affect oh, yeah. the location of, of a sea mammal. Right. So it was crazy. You know, when I was, I was working on the case that became uh, winter versus natural resources, defense council in the Supreme court, the Navy sonar case. I spent a lot of time with submariners and they told me about just that sonic environment they they live in where they're hearing whales, but they're also hearing, you know, construction and they can hear helicopters overhead yeah. you know, within the way. I mean, their their biggest concern with whales is the whales liking, to, you know, to rub up against the sub. <laughs> but um, but it, it's a fascinating environment and actually, you know, fairly noisy. You have lightning strike on the ocean or I did have a similar experience in Alaska. When I went up a fish and wildlife service spotter plane at, uh, out of Juneau over Tenneke Inlet and looking down into the water column at whales swimming. It looks like they're just flying in yeah. that, that beautiful, clear water. That was just an amazing. I'll never, I'll never forget that moment. Oh, that's way better than my trip. <laughs> that sounds yeah. really awesome. <laughs> There's the part of the show where we all get jealous. That's the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. That's really cool. Okay. So yeah, that's all really great stuff. And um, we can't have you on without asking a couple of NEPA questions. So you know, it's just, I can't help myself there. But you know, it's funny. I've been mentoring a few folks on what NEPA is. And you know, listening back to your previous interview, you had a really great description of it where you called it democracy with a lowercase d, which I don't know why it's just stuck with me. So... How would you kind of describe NEPA to somebody who's learning it and what resources would you point them to to learn more? Well, I would describe it as, frankly, it's, I like the environmental democracy description because it's designed to inform decision makers and inform the public. And it helps educate the public about what the government is going to do to you and, and what your <laughs> environment and and you know what the, what they're planning and sort of you know that sort of i'm from the government i'm here to help you well okay what, let's define help what do you mean and also being open to public involvement and that's the core of the idea behind environmental impact statements and really nepa writ large is that it's it's ultimately a, a public education statute much of title one of nepa is geared towards advancing public understanding of the environment, its ecology and, and ongoing issues. And the issues that Congress was concerned about back in the 1960s are ones that you know we haven't solved. We've got, in some cases, they've just grown more critical. Uh, and certainly climate change is one. In many ways, you know, we talk about like the Cuyahoga River fires in uh, the 1960s. Well, that was an environmental justice issue. You know, and we didn't we didn't talk about it in those terms, but our understandings get refined. I mean, uh, you know, concerns about impacts to biological diversity. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like we've solved that. We are in extinction crisis and understanding the effect of government programs on that or government actions, both from the standpoint of consequences and opportunities. You probably hear we've got an emergency. Yeah, going. Exactly. I know. I feel like you have, um, you're talking about environmental crisis and all this background. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, Nick, I, are you pushing buttons over there? I'm at the office down at 13th and G street in, in Washington, DC. And you know, that it's we, just, we have that though. So. Right. <laughs> Uh, but in terms of resources to point people to, I, mean, I really think that the CEQ website, NEPA.gov, that, you know, 
you know, Ray Clark and then Horace Gretschmill more or less created. And then I, I sort of redesigned and we have the Citizen's Guide to NEPA. We've just got some great resources up there. And so I uh, encourage people to to use that as a for both practitioners as well as also just, you know, lay people. Perfect. Yeah. And so I have, I have two more questions for you on the NEPA front. You know, some of these are coming from conversations we had at the conference with different people talking about different things. And one of them that came up was the technology initiative that the Biden administration has. We want to be using technology in the NEPA process to make it easier, better, more streamlined, all those fun things. So yeah. where do you see the industry kind of, where is it with technology? Maybe where is it, where does it need to go? What are we missing? when it comes to technology and, and using it in the NEPA process? Yeah, I think that the area where I'd certainly go by the the adage that, a, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, but I mean, a, a really good map, I'm sort of map oriented, but can show interrelationships and show consequences and alternatives and, and help problem solving much better than any narrative description ever can. And so having the words backed up by or interacting with the real world, if you will. For me, I'm a big fan of Google Earth and just being able to kind of zoom down on, you know, what are we talking about? Where is this? How does this relate to that? The more that we can make environmental review sort of live and relate to the databases that people use, people are are mapping their way to and from locations constantly now and they're you know and they're they're pummeled with advertisements you know hey you're going to be stopping by this coffee shop here and would you you know that sort of thing but having information about and you know did you know that this road is being studied to be realigned over here um and it would have this consequence and did you know that your combined sewer system here is regularly with the rain that you're experiencing today exceeding the capacity of your your treatment plant. That kind of information. I think the technology initiative is really exciting because it could help better link these environmental documents to live databases, to GIS layers that really get people's attention and also, you know, resonate for decision makers. So that, you know, for me, the best aspect of the NEPA process is when you're actually using it to help involve people in problem solving. Yeah. Oh man, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really interesting, exciting area. I'm really excited to see where we go in the next few years. And my last NEPA question, and I have to put a NEPA nerd alert out, I swear it's super nerdy, but it's just a curiosity question I have. So technically you can take an environmental assessment and either it becomes a FONSI or you can decide to go to an EIS. And I think I've never seen the second one. I know it's possible, but almost in my mind, almost every time somebody wants to do an EIS or thinks they might have to do an EIS, they just do the EIS. So have you seen projects that actually start as an environmental assessment, get all the way to the end, and they're like, oh, you know what? This has to be an EIS. The reason you you don't see it is because you don't, it usually doesn't hit the light of day. I mean, it's, it's basically the environmental assessment is being developed by whoever the proponent is saying, uh, yeah, we think we can get to a finding of no significant impact. And others look at it, go, hmm, I'm not seeing, you know, what about this? What about this? And that, you know, they clearly have a finding of no significant impact in mind. 
And people just say, no, wait a second, that's not going to fly. I mean, to have an environmental assessment literally get converted to an environmental impact statement, you'd issue it to the public and you'd have the public say, wait a second, no, this needs to be an EIS. I think, I mean, it's a good question as to, you know, Ted, how many examples can you find where like the notice of intent said, yeah, we started this off as an EA, but now we're doing this in EIS. I know those examples exist, but whether the NOI actually owns up to, actually, we tried this as an EI, now we're doing it as EIS. Usually it's just sort of like, okay, let's bygones be bygones. We're just going out with an NOI. But the 2020 rules changed the role of the NOI as the start of the NEPA process to recognize that there's a whole bunch of scoping that goes into environmental process. And NOI is just the formal stage of it. And it may be that, you know, you have greater sort of use of environmental assessments to really sort of, you know, marshal up here are the alternatives, here's the effects. I mean, it, it sort of serves that purpose of an expanded NOI now where we have a more fulsome description of both the proposed action alternatives and effects. And what do you think? So, right. yeah. Yeah, so there great. you go. That's a long-winded answer as to why you, you don't have a whole lot of examples of, of EAs converted into EISs. There we go. All right, Laura, I'm done. I <laughs> right. Did you get your NEPA fill? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> okay. Awesome. All right. Well, I need my uh, outdoor adventures fill. So, we really enjoyed talking to you last time about your love of outdoors and national parks and sailing and all of those fun things. So what have you been up to since the last time we talked to you? Well, let's see. All right. So that was April of last year. So I went back to one of my favorite places on earth, Ocracoke Island, north coast of North Carolina. It's, nice. uh, you know, it's got a little village at one end of it, but most of it is just wild national seashore. Uh, it's uh, wonderful. It's part of Hatteras National Seashore. And then uh, just across Ocracoke Inlet is Portsmouth Island, which is part of Cape Fear National Seashore. And it's just an amazing resource there. There's a, lots of wild beach. And to just have that as, uh, you know, so accessible uh, by ferry, thanks to the North Carolina Department of Transportation, it's a wonderful resource. I was also on the other side of North Carolina and with the Tennessee border last around New Year's, between Christmas and New Year's, I was in the area of Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the Appalachian Trail going through Max Patch and and uh, just some really pretty country. Were you um, actually hiking? Yeah, I was staying in a cabin and doing day hiking. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't, didn't overnight anywhere, but uh, did get uh, onto the eastern side of, of Great Smoky Mountains where I hadn't been before and, and saw elk. Uh, awesome. And just, wow. You know, and just, Oh, I, I was, it was a wonderful experience because my kids were like, elk? Elk in, in the Smokies? And why? No, there are no elk there. Like, oh, yeah. oh, let me show you. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying that in my head just now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. So I, I really, I love, you know, I, so I've been spanning North Carolina uh, a bit. You know, I need to, I also, I was out at the International Association for Impact Assessment uh, meeting in Vancouver, Canada, oh, and, uh, and saw some friends there, including Ken Weiner, who was at CEQ in the Carter administration. Uh, wow. He's just a wonderful guy. And it's just, you know, and I think Vancouver is one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It's just it is. It was such a, a treat to just be out, out there in the parks and running around. And that was it was a great trip. Yeah. Very cool. 
Yeah, that's incredible. And like I say, I always love hearing those stories from you. We are almost out of time and I hate it because we could keep talking to you forever. But is there anything else you want to cover before we let you go? One of the questions that we we haven't gotten to is about just public involvement changing yeah. a project. I was looking around for, you know, sort of famous examples of public involvement and Natural Resources Defense Council has their sort of NEPA success stories and such. But mm-hmm. it occurred to me that, you know, I deal with public involvement changing projects on a daily basis. And so, you know, so much of it is not just sort of, sort of like the big bright line, you know, the agency was going to do this and the public completely changed it 180 degrees and they realized, no, I mean, there are those examples, but most of it is just the sort of refinement and also yeah. changes in mitigation. I mean, I've seen this with, you know, like California high-speed rail where it's like, you know, okay, we're going to build the Burbank to LA segment here. We just had a board decision on that recently, but the public involvement really is embedded in project design as well as also project implementation. And so, I mean, I see this time and time again. So I'm going to, I'm no longer looking for that big, bright, aha moment, but it's really all the many subtle ways in which public involvement gets factored in or anticipated. Yeah. Oh, that's such a, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's totally true. And I love that that happens and it does on a daily basis. And it's much, uh, it's a, it's a really neat thing. Last but not least, where can people find you if they want to reach out? Well, at, at Perkins Cooey uh, and uh, Perkins, P-E-R-K-I-N-S-C-O-I-E is the law firm. We got practitioners on the West Coast, the East Coast. We're kind of all over, even in China, although I haven't, I haven't worked in China. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a great law firm with a lot of really seasoned NEPA practitioners like Bill Malley, who's the managing partner for the firm worldwide. So Perfect. it's a good bunch. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Ted, so much. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah. It's always a good time. Thanks. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. That's our show. Thank you, Ted, so much for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.